Welcome to the first podcast of Gesellschaftsspiele, The Art of Assembly, a series of lectures and talks on the political and artistic potential of gatherings. In a time in which every form of physical togetherness has become highly precarious, as we all know. My name is Florian Malzacher, I'm a curator and writer, and this podcast is based on a live, of course, online event that took place on 23rd of January, 2021. The series is produced by Brut Theater in Vienna in collaboration with Münchner Kammerspiele und Wiener Festwochen, and I'm really happy and grateful that they made this possible, and especially I'd like to thank the amazing team of Brut for all their patience and work. Parallel to this, we also launched an internet platform with videos and additional material, which will grow over the coming months. You find it uh, under art-of-assembly.net. Today's edition has the title Assembly as Pre-Enactment. First, you will hear three input lectures of about each 15 minutes. I will be the first one and will try to lay out some of the similarities and the differences of assemblies happening in the frame of activism and assemblies happening in the frame of art. Then political theorist Oliver Marchert will reflect on future politics and political futures, followed by Dana Yahalomi, choreographer and leader of the artistic research body Public Movement, who gives an insight into the practice of being together. After this, there will be a conversation with both of them. So let me begin with some thoughts on the art of assembly. Spheres of pragmatic utopias and radical imagination. The last decade has seen a lot of occupations of squares. It started in, in uh, Tunisia with, uh, and then uh, Tahrir Square in Egypt and moved to Occupy Wall Street in, in New York, Taksim Square, recently Hong Kong and so on. So there's a lot of social movements that marked the last 10 years. And um, in the core of these movements, mostly there was not only the demonstrations, the public things, but the assemblies, the way of how to assemble. They also tried to develop different forms of assembling, finding out different ways of, uh, of um, making decisions, of living together, of avoiding hierarchies, changing rules, etc. This had an impact on the arts from the very beginning. A lot of artists were involved in these meetings, but also um, within the arts and especially in theater, there was an interest in how to use assemblies also in, as, as an artistic form, how to stage assemblies, how to try out what assemblies could be capable of to develop uh, new models and to radicalize democracy uh, in, this, in, this, well, in this artistic field, in this artistic frame. Even so, there's this close relationship between arts and politics in this, there's still a crucial difference, I would say. So the, the uh, activist assembly in an anarchist tradition usually is understood as a place that is very authentic, a place of real negotiation, of living together, of trying to find out things together. And um, uh, theater has a more difficult relationship uh, to authenticity. So on one hand, it desires authenticity. At the same time, it very much distrusts authenticity. Uh, you could say theater is a strange, a paradox machine where things are all the time real and fictional at the same time. There's no contradiction between this. Uh, they, things are symbolic and actual at the same time. Uh, 
You can be inside a performance, inside the theater, and at the same time, watch yourself from outside. So theater is always a self-reflexive practice while uh, you live in it. And um, you can say this relates very much to Brecht, for example, the idea of the alienation effect, that you have this kind of double take with it. And that's quite a contradiction to most activists, to put it a little bit uh, bluntly, most activists would probably define uh, the, the assembly. So this is also a line of conflict, maybe, uh, between, between arts and activism when it comes to the format of assemblies. To give an example, the work of Lotte Vandenberg, a Dutch uh, theatre director, um, always circles around finding out what is in the core of theatre. And for her, if you take away everything from theatre, everything that is nice to have but not essential, it will be a conversation. A conversation uh, in a uh, certain group, in a certain time, at a certain space, following certain rules. And this is what exactly what her project, Building Conversation, did. It was just a conversation. You would buy a ticket, you would come and join a conversation. There were no actors, no special set design, just the order of chairs, perhaps. Uh, and there were different methods after which the, these uh, conversations would be conducted like a silent conversation without words, uh, following uh, Inuit uh, um, assemblies, um, a Jesuit way of doing, changing reflection and talk and so on, um, a concept by quantum theorist David Bohm, uh, which tries to bring up collective thinking without the topic giving. So sometimes there wouldn't even be a moderator. So you would be, as the audience, you are also the performers. You, you do the evening, you're the assembly of this evening. What makes this theater is exactly just that it's called theater. Sometimes it just needs very little to frame it. I mean, there's a certain space, a certain arrangement, that's it. But this agreement already enables you to actually also reflect on the situation and not just be in the situation. So what Lotte, what Lotte Vandenberg basically does here is she tries to give an answer to a problem that already Bertolt Brecht uh, in the short organums for theater from 1949 uh, addressed. So he was saying basically, to quote more or less directly, uh, that theater, conventional theater, shows the structure of society on stage uh, as unchangeable by society in the audience. So what happens in this kind of theater is that you, are repre you pre represent you show with the best intentions and critique and so on, you show what is happening in the world, but you don't give a possibility to change it. So basically it's reproduced also by, by the play, but the whole structure of theater basically reproduces uh, the system it wants to criticize uh, in this thought. So of course a theater that wants to be an assembly needs to offer real participation. But what does that even mean in a all-inclusive uh, capitalist system where, where participation basically is defined as consumption. So we are actively participating by consumption or uh, by being allowed to vote once in a while but not have further impact on what is happening. So how to radicalize these ideas of democracy uh, actually. And we know this um, from, from participatory theater, from so-called participatory theater a lot. So we are basically offered uh, fake participation. We are forced into participation, but this participation is not even a real participation because we can maybe go to the left instead of the right or what, something like this, but we are still part of a plan of somebody else. So how to understand these problems of participation, but at the same time 
uh, not avoid them, but kind of like uh, tackle them and find new ways. That's that's the work of of assemblies and also the work of assemblies within art. One of the most maybe radical attempts to uh, to create participation of people that we usually don't hear or that even we are forbidden to hear uh, is Jonas Stahl's series of New World Summit. Jonas Stahl is a Dutch artist who uses theatre to create uh, assemblies that otherwise would be not possible or even illegal. So in the New World Summit, uh, the, rep uh, the, the speakers are representatives of, of liberation movements, of movements for self-determination all over the world. Um, they are usually considered, at least by other countries or some other countries, terrorists. So these are people that might be on some terrorist lists. Uh, terrorist lists are actually doing something um, which is outside of the realm of uh, of the uh, legal state, outside of the realm of democracy. It's kind of like lists that we don't we, we don't really know who is on there, how to get on there, how to get off this list. So it's basically excluded from democracy. And this stage kind of tries to to include it in our discourse. So there are people that you might not necessarily agree with. So there are moments which are very touching, very um, um, enlightening uh, to learn about different causes. Uh, and we will have maybe not much difficulties as a liberal audience to identify with the women movement in, in Rojava, the Kurdish state in North Syria. Uh, but we might have big problems with other movements where uh, the use of violence, of weapons, a certain kind of patriarchy, hierarchies, etc., might be something we disagree with. Or sometimes liberation movements even overlap in the state they actually want uh, to create. So the, the New World Summit doesn't give hints how to, how to judge these things. It offers a space uh, and a possibility for ourselves to, to, uh, to build an opinion and to hear different causes. In this context, for me, it's quite helpful to uh, use the term that uh, the philosopher, theoretical philosopher, uh, political philosopher Chantal Mouffe uh, uses of agonistic pluralism. So um, she basically says that um, democracy is a field in which adversaries have to fight about their hegemonic projects. We have to have arguments about what kind of projects we want, what the world we want to live in. And uh, Mouffe says, Adver adversaries do fight even fiercely, but according to a shared set of rules. And their positions, despite being ultimately irreconcilable, they are accepted as legitimate. So what she basically says that there's a difference between antagonism and agonism. We need an agonistic sphere in democracy to be able to fight about different ideas, because if we don't allow this, we will have an antagonistic situation, like maybe we see in the US at the moment, where basically there's no space for negotiation anymore, and it ends up with at least symbolic civil war. And I think theater can actually be such a space where in, small, in a small way, in a playful but serious way, we can act out certain agonisms. And um, I think it's not by chance that Muff uses the term Agon from the Greek tournament in, in sports, but also in, in, in the arts. So, so Agon is also the competition of arguments in Greek drama. And theater, you can say, in fact, has always been a medium for conflicts. So it's medium, it's for conflicts between individuals and states, between different nations, between um, married couples, or even within the head of one character in psychological drama. 
so it's always about representing these conflicts, even in the most conventional uh, drama. Uh, so theater is a place of negotiation and even so often partisan space of agonistic pluralism. And no matter how often final acts kind of uh, suggest there could be a conclusion to something. In a way, you could say that the works by the Swiss theater director Milo Rau are almost textbook examples to illustrate uh, the theory of Chantalmouf, at least his trials and his uh, uh, tribunals less than the more conventional stage work. So, for example, the Moscow trials um, were an example from 2013 where he staged in, in Moscow, in the Sakharov Center, uh, three trials against art from the, uh, from the recent years. So it was three, three trials where uh, exhibitions were closed, uh, things were censored, artists were put into trial, the third one, the famous Pussy Riot trial. Uh, and he restaged these three t uh, trials in three days uh, with a real protagonist of this time or people that were related to these causes. So there would be uh, artists, critics, curators defending art. There would be um, reactionary TV moderators, orthodox priests and so on, making the case uh, that religion is the most important. And they, all this would be discussed in front of a jury, also made up by people from, uh, from the city, um, to find out if art is guilty or, or uh, if these uh, exhibitions were closed rightfully or not. And in a way, it was an extremely intense situation because people's lives were really depending on this situation. But it was possible to do it. It was possible to have in one space these people together and have this discussion, something that would be completely impossible already outside uh, of, these, of these walls. So it needed the theatrical set for this, even though it was quite a realistic theatrical set. Um, most suggests that public space is the battleground for the agonistic struggle uh, between opposing um, hegemonic projects. And on a small scale, I guess, theatre sometimes can offer this, this space for this battleground, at least in a symbolic way, and, uh, and basically use art to quote, quote uh, Mi Wong Kwon, not in public space, but as public space. So another concept that is quite helpful to think about the potential of assemblies, of artistic assemblies, but to a degree also of activist assemblies, is the idea of a pre-enactment. It's a term that is used by uh, the Israeli artistic research body, Public Movement, its uh, director and choreographer, uh, Dana Yalomi, but also by the political theorist, Oliver Marchat. He describes uh, pre-enactment as a kind of artistic anticipa anticipation of an event, of a political event to come. So it's like an artistic work which already seems to know or is preparing us for something that might come because we never know what, what, uh, when a political event will occur and in, in, in which way. So it cannot be a rehearsal in the sense of we now exactly rehearse for this and this revolution. Uh, it can be, it's more like, uh, Michael would say, like a training or a rehearsal in, in, in classic ballet where at the bar you train for whatever choreography might come. So how can this concept of pre-enactment work for artistic assemblies or maybe also activist assemblies. 
let's look at two examples of which one I think was a pre-enactment or try attempted to be. One was rather maybe a learning play. Uh, both deal with the climate change conference in Paris 2015. One is done by Rimini Protocol and the other is done by uh, philosopher Bruno Latour together with a uh, uh, theorist and uh, theatre director Frédéric Aituati and uh, theatre director Philippe Kang. Rimini Protocol basically tried to put the structure of the real climate conference into a conference. So the more than 600 audience members represented one-to-one -one the more than 600 uh, um, representatives within the climate change conference, representing the 196 nations that are uh, in this conference. They only had three hours' time. They tried to understand the logic why each country needs certain results and what are the interests and negotiated this. And basically the results they came up with were quite close to the ones that actually were found in Paris in the real conference. So it was about understanding how the structure functions, understanding each position each country might have. In this regard, a bit like a learning play in the Brechtian sense where the uh, the audience is also the performer, and you try to understand the different uh, positions within an argument. But uh, the, the take that Latour, Aituati and Ken had in their, in their version, which they called Théâtre de, de Négociation, um, was different. It was rather about empowering the audience and finding different solutions, pre-enacting different possibilities. So they had 200 students, a lot of experts and so on, and trying to find out ways how to also give representation to entities that are not represented in this. Young people, indigenous people, but also forests, landscapes, rivers, plants, animals, etc. How could that work? How can they be also part of this, uh, of this um, uh, of this concept and they try to set up a carter and try to really influence the discussion and try to do, think of something that could replace this kind of uh, conference possibly in the future. Obviously there can be many more examples of uh, assemblies in, within the artistic realm um, and also in the activist realm and we will have a lot of them in the course of the series from different regions in the world with different causes, with different uh, ways of trying to open space for a different kind of radical imagination and pragmatic utopias. In a moment where we all know that the world is quite turbulent and democracies all over the place are under threat, but also in a moment where we actually are not allowed to assemble. That's why I'm speaking to you from my, my study and not uh, in, in a theater space. Uh, it's maybe a moment to actually also reflect what is the potential of assembling. Uh, in a moment where we also feel how precarious uh, coming together actually is, how easy it is to lose it, to imagine what, what assemblies, what ways of negotiation, what ways of decision-making, what hierarchies or non-hierarchies, uh, what way of co-living we want for the future. I now uh, would like to virtually hand over the microphone to Oliver Marchardt and I'm really very happy uh, that he's with us because I owe a lot of my understanding of politics and the political to his thinking and writing. Oliver Marchardt is a political theorist who teaches at the University of Vienna and he works in the fields of political ontology, democratic theory and artery. His most recent books include 
Thinking Antagonism, Political Ontology after Laclau, and and this is in our context, I think, uh, really, really important book, Conflictual Aesthetics, Artistic Activism and the Public Sphere, in which he also develops the concept of pre-enactment. I was asked to give a, say a few words about the notion of pre-enactment and uh, assembly, and I will be doing this as a political theorist. Um, who has worked on these notions, especially on the notion of pre-enactment, for some years now. And it is important to understand that obviously it is much more than an inversion, a chronological or temporal inversion of the reenactment. So what the reenactment does, and there are many examples for reenactments, Jeremy Della's canonical example of the reenactment of the Battle of Orgreave, where striking workers, mine workers, fought the Thatcherite police. Or another example, Sergei Evrainov's restaging of the storming of the Winter Palace in 1920. Again, a reenactment. Pre-enactments are something different. You could think of pre-enactments as simply uh, a extrapolation of our current contemporary condition into the future. So then you think about it in a totally linear way. So whatever happens now may be much worse in the future. Usually these pre-enactments are dystopic. Very few of them are utopic in the sense of a good topos in the future. Now, pre-enactment as I understand it is something entirely different because the future remains unknown. And for that very simple reason, to pre-enact the future means to pre-enact something which is unknown, to pre-enact an unknown event. How can we do this? How is that possible? Now, we can do it in the field of art, in the field of performance art, uh, with artistic means. Um, and I try to define the artistic pre-enactment as a artistic anticipation of a political event to come. That obviously gives a political touch to the idea of the pre-enactment. The pre-enactment uh, is always a pre-enactment of a political event, not necessarily, but in terms of political artistic practices, in terms of, um, if you wish, artivism, artistic activism. So, what we are looking for when we look for a future political event to come would be a future, a future storming of the Winter Palace or a future Battle of Orgreave. Now, again, we don't know how exactly that future storming of the Winter Palace will look like. We don't even know whether it will be the Winter Palace or the Capitol Hill or any other place, but we know something about the nature of political events. So what political events uh, are characterized by is first, they are unforeseen, otherwise they would not be events. So something happens, nobody has expected it to happen. The Soviet Union collapses, uh, the Capitol Hill is stormed. Some people say they expected that to happen, but anyway, you know, many people 
uh, took it by surprise. Uh, and political events like revolutions are notorious for being unforeseen, for happening out of the blue. And so that, that's the first condition of a political event. But another condition is, of course, is that in a political event, we assemble. So it is nothing which happens on an individual level. It is nothing which only a few individuals by themselves bring into life, but a political event is by nature a collective event. That's the second most important uh, feature of a political event. The third feature is that it is a conflictual event. So obviously, otherwise it wouldn't be political. So people are storming the Winter Palace because they are for or against something. So it's always, of course, taking place in the medium of conflict. And then there is a fourth criterion or a fourth dimension of a political event. And I would call it simply movement. So through a political event, people are set in motion. It instigates movement. Maybe it is brought about by movement. In any case, there is movement involved. The term mob as a term, derogatory term, of course, for the masses in movement uh, derives from the Latin mobile. And the same uh, with the French emeute, for instance, uh, another term for mob or the German meute. All these are terms that derive from a notion of movement. So when we think of the masses as the actors in a political event, we necessarily think of masses in movement, of moving masses. And this is very important. So we must not think of a political event as something happening you know, only at the top of the government. It happens basically on the very base of mass movements. Again, we don't know whether this is going to happen or in what forms it is going to happen. But when it happens, we as individuals are to a certain degree touched by that event. We are agitated by something that occurs to us. And then we join the movement. It is because we are agitated, we start agitating as political actors and we assemble. So my point here is that we should differentiate between two, let's say, things that bring us to assemble, that brings us together. And, we, and these are totally different. There are reasons for assembling and there are causes for assembling. Because the question is, you know, uh, what gets us to the point where we start assembling? The reasons for assembling can be manifold. So for instance, um, I will be paid 500 euros to assemble with uh, Florian and Dana in this uh, event, which is an online event, unfortunately. So it's not really an assembly, but we assemble online to talk about assemblies. That's a reason, maybe there are other reasons, but it's not a cause. 
it's not what causes me. It's not in any case a political cause that, you know, gets me moving. So uh, is there a political cause? I don't know, maybe not in the classical sense of politics, maybe not in the sense of party politics, but maybe we do share a common cause, Florian, Dana, and I. Uh, it's rather fussy, but it could be something more than just being paid for doing something, that is for the reasons for being here. So we should differentiate between the reasons and the cause. And when we talk about the political and we talk about politics, then we talk about the cause. Because in the case of politics, it's clear, people in most cases do not assemble because they are paid anything. They assemble because they need to, because they cannot not assemble, because they feel agitated, as I said, by something which is a cause, a common cause. Now, obviously, this cause is something which is of an ontological nature. It is something which, you know, is not refined to the area of politics. In our common life or in our professional life, we also follow causes. And the important thing is that very often we don't know what these causes are. Certainly, I would claim they come from the future. And that's why we don't know what these causes are. We are looking for them. We are following them. We know that there is something that drives us, but we try to get there at the distant point in the future. And of course, I mean, there are different ways of describing this. The psychoanalytic way in Lacanian psychoanalysis would be to talk about the object cause of desire. So we desire something. And we, so we try to get it and we follow it, but we basically never get it. So it escapes our grasp. And at some point in the future, uh, we hope we will get it. Of course, it's not going to happen. But, you know, on a, on a different scale, uh, we can do something about it. And there's a simple term for it, which is training. We can prepare ourselves. Uh, we can prepare ourselves in order to be up to the task to follow the course and maybe at some distant point in the future live up to the task of the event when it occurs. So the storming of the Winter Palace, when it occurs, should it occur. So to train is something and perhaps the only way of tackling that problem of an absent cause. And we know this from the from you know the performative arts. So think of uh, a classical example, forgive me the, the cheesy example. Think, think of the example of a ballet dancer, a classical ballet dancer. So a ballet dancer would be you know training at the bar you know for many years. Why? Because at some point there will be the skills achieve through the training to live up to a particular choreography, but not a single choreography, not this choreography. So there can be many choreographies. So what you try to assemble is the skills for basically dancing in whatever comes up. So the nutcracker or a swan lake or whatever, you know, so you, you, you try to be able to 
to, 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 to do the job. But you're not looking for a particular, uh, for a particular choreography. But uh, that's not the cause. So these choreographies in the future are not the cause for your training. The cause is something else. The cause is maybe in your childhood, you saw Swan Lake and you thought, when I grow up, I will be able to dance in Swan Lake. I want to be a swan. That's the cause for your training. And you may or may not be able to ever dance in Swan Lake. It is still the cause of your actions. It is still the cause of your training. So in a, in a way, the cause is in a distant future, you might never be able to achieve it, but at the same time it is present because it motivates you to do the training, the exercise. And therefore, you're already a swan in your imagination, but maybe also in your movements. Uh, so the swan is present and you, and you want to be a swan. So that was my... That was my uh, very cheesy example. You can translate this into politics. So what activists do is basically, they train for the moment of the manifestation and demonstration in the streets when they will be carried away by the police. Though so they train what to do at that very moment. So they train for a moment of confrontation, the moment of conflict that might come and uh, Maybe they will be carried away by the police, maybe not, but they have to be prepared. So a common cause is the only reason why we assemble, the real reason, the, the actual cause. And I would end with uh, another political point, uh, a point about the ultimate cause. And I would want to make the following point. The object cause of political desire might be a very mundane political cause. You know, uh, we want the government to be toppled or we want to achieve only very moderate things in politics. But there is an ultimate cause and it is death. Uh, or with Heidegger, finitude. That's how Heidegger called it. Why? Because if we were to live forever, there would be no cause for doing anything. There would be no reason for doing anything either, but certainly no cause. So only because we, our being as human beings is finite, there will be causes to do something. And the ultimate cause therefore is finitude. In politics, the name for finitude which is the dimension of radical negativity in life, if you wish. In politics, the name for finitude, there can be many names, but my preferred name is antagonism, which is a name which was developed basically in German idealism. Then of course, in Hegel's work, the work of the labor of the negative, uh, it is in Hegel. And then later on in Karl Marx, who used the term antagonism. And then in contemporary thought by Ernesto Laclau and Chantal Mouffe, for instance. And here we come to a point where we say, okay, what is it, antagonism? It is a conflictual way of radical negativity. It is that which drives us to act politically. When we are confronted with a situation 
of a political event, we are confronted with antagonism. We are confronted with a particular radical negativity, which demonstrates to us that things are not how they should be. And for that reason, they can be changed in the medium of conflict and they should be changed and can only be changed in the medium of conflict. There is no other way of changing the status quo other than through conflictual acting. And that means movement, becoming a mob. I mean, I'm not saying that every kind of mob is good or justified. I'm just saying that that's how the political, how I understand it works. But I want to issue, of course, also uh, a warning because radical negativity or the antagonism can come, come in many shapes and forms. Not necessarily in the form of radical negativity or death or you know, conflict in the most brutal violent sense. It can come in the forms of flowers for instance, as in the slogan, the feminist slogan, Red and Roses, which uh, was the slogan of the 1912 textile workers strike in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Red and Roses, these are causes, causes that get us to act because we want to have bread, we want to have, you know, you know, just the means of life, the means of surviving. Uh, but we also want to have roses. Uh, and roses are also a very good cause for political acting because we do not simply want to survive, we want to have a good life. And also a good life can be a cause, but it can only be brought about through acting and in the means of conflict. And to do this means to pre-enact a future society where you have both bread and roses. That's the idea of this course. And I'm looking forward to discuss this and other questions uh, with Florian and Dana. And last but not least, I'm very happy to welcome Dana Yaalumi from Tel Aviv. Uh, Dana is the Director of Public Movement, a performative research body which investigates and stages political actions in public spaces. and. Um, they fit very well into this topic because public movement is always dealing with political gestures, with the theoreticality of politics, and among these also assemblies. And we actually we collaborated a couple of times, and uh, among these were also actually the work on two assemblies, uh, one set as a gala event and the other as a parliamentary assembly. So maybe we have time to talk about this also a little bit. And well, the work of public movement is presented, has been presented and produced all over the world in museums and theaters and festivals and public spaces, etc. And what is also interesting, I guess, in our context, obviously, is that the uh, uh, public movement has used the term pre-enactment from very early on to describe their own works, their own political artistic uh, actions. First of all, I would like to thank Florian for the invitation. Although it feels slightly ironic to discuss the meanings of assembly in times of social distance, I do think that it is as relevant as ever to put our thoughts and dreams into this important social act. I would like to discuss assemblies in the most physical sense, 
the act of getting together, of being body next to body, navigating our movements in relations to others, the spontaneous and constructed environments where we talk, listen, and discuss with one another. In that sense, during our observation of the possibilities residing in a group of people congregating, I would like to suspend the discussion from the reasons for gathering, to not focus on the motives or desired results. It may be a commemoration, a protest, a celebration. It may include leisure, cultural, or ritualistic purposes. Instead, I wish to discuss the mere joint presence of various bodies in one space that I see as an asset, a force that holds the potential for an action to take place. Therefore, designing the arena where an, where an assembly can gather, its circumstances and surrounding, is, I would claim, to lay down the foundation from which we can create a fracture in the status quo. The feelings of dissatisfaction from how things are, an awakening of consciousness or a passion to act, are contagious. They spread fast in the company of others. So even though assemblies do not always produce one unified goal or a group, they still hold a radical potential as they serve us as training grounds for being together. By this, I do not only mean corporal insights, but moving physically, mentally, and socially through conflict. In that sense, each act of assemblies is a political act in itself, in that it prepares us. We get accustomed to the sensation of being a crowd, of moving as one body, and to converse with each other. It functions as a rehearsal for a moment when the political action will be fulfilled, a moment in which the atmosphere is open to bring in a change. Elias Canetti, in his book, Crowd and Power, described the corporal and emotional sensation of being a crowd. He writes, only together can men free themselves from the burden of distance in this density where there is secretly no space between and body presses against body. Each man is as near to the other as he is to himself. And an immense feeling of relief ensues. It is for the sake of this blessed moment when no one is greater or better than another, that people become a crowd. I would like to give an example of working with the understanding of an assembly as pre-enactment, the historical state-run assembly titled Operation Stockholm. On the 23rd of April, 1961, the population of Stockholm was asked to leave their homes for one day as part of an emergency exercise. They were asked to travel to designated landmarks defined as shelter, where the crowd assembled. Although Sweden had officially taken a neutral position in the Cold War, a fear of a Russian provocation in the form of a bomb had generated national security procedures. This state-structured emergency routine included a printed pamphlet called When Crisis and War Comes, which was distributed to citizens' homes. It included a detailed description of what should be done in the moment of crisis and a detailed plan for the day of evacuation. 30,000 citizens took part in the event, left their homes, and traveled to the forest areas and near suburbs. The Russian attack had never occurred, and the capital of Sweden did not need to perform what it practiced. Nevertheless, the evacuation of Stockholm 
did take place. It was covered by national media, photographed, filmed, and reported. Journalists from around the world, from Italy and Austria, for example, traveled for the occasion, participated in the evacuation, and reported the experience. While the state was working towards a defined event of being attacked, from a civic point of view, the drill can be seen as an event in itself. Inhabitants of Stockholm packed their precious belongings and left their homes. On the way, they supported the weak members of their society and assisted each other when the road became less comfortable. At the end of the journey, when people gathered in the forest, people served soup and discussed with each other under the auspice of a shared threat. It became of a secondary importance if they believed the necessity of such an exercise or they merely agreed to obey the state guidelines. All of these moments, as I see them, had contributed to the accumulation of knowledge of how to be or become a public. In that sense, this assembly functioned as a pre-enactment. Operation Stockholm 1961 was scripted in a futuristic vision developed and distributed by the state. Events as such, often appearing as a large-scale spectacles, and usually contain a declared or hidden ideology. They intentionally or not form our way of communication and the way we care for a body of a stranger. I would argue for an artistic responsibility to invent, design, and orchestrate assemblies, to appropriate state operation and use their organizing force in the staging of assemblies which are free from a specific ideology. Continuing with the example of Operation Stockholm 1961, public movement treated this historic assembly as educational tool for behavioral conducts, asking how we care for each other's bodies. The performance emergency routine was created for Stockholm 2019, a year after the pamphlet If Crisis and War Comes was rewritten, redistributed, and designed to refer to its original. It has been 40 years since it was last printed, and the reappearance is attributed to the new assessment from the Defense Ministry, which says that Sweden would not be able to care for the well-being of its citizens if a catastrophe happens. Our point of departure was to create a large evacuation exercise in which the public itself practices choreographies of care and compassion, of governing and control. During the performance, the public engaged in carrying the weight of each other, of disciplining bodies, and is moving as one body. We appropriated structures usually performed by state agencies and facilitated them in civic arenas, while holding, without trying to control, the potential these practices holds.
the gap between my body and your body. We need to evacuate this place. Let's take them away from here. In the last year, we have experienced a complete subversion of our social life. We no longer can decide who we want to meet and where we want to go. The freedom to assemble in its various form was discarded, and instead, a very controlled environment was introduced, hovered by a constant feeling of solitude. All around the world, we have neglected and put at risk public space and its central role in our social and political life. We have silently agreed that the street, the square, the theater are dangerous. In order to protect each other, we agreed to keep apart. More than ever, we are confronted with the fragility of the body and the impossibility to know whether each one of us holds a danger within them or within ourselves and who might be a risk for us. But public space does not exist as such. It is constituted through our bodies when we get together. So how should we consider the desire to assemble in a time of pandemic? To what extent are we responsible for our own body and the body of our friend, colleague, or neighbor? And how much of this responsibility do we want to put in the hands of the state? How does disobedience play a role here? I believe that some of this question would become even more urgent if the limitation of movement continues. Erich Fromm wrote about disobedience. He says that humanity starts from an act of disobedience. Adam and Eve were part of nature, in harmony with it, yet they did not transcend it. They were human and at the same time not yet human. All of this changed when they disobeyed an order. Their disobedience made them individuals, but it also brought them together. During long periods of lockdown, we have witnessed an outburst of civic unrest all around the world. Despite the constant threat of the virus, human nature or human condition held on to its right to assemble and act together. Protest became one of the only motions for which people are allowed to gather. Despite strict social regulation, or perhaps exactly in reaction to them, protest had become ever more intense and physical, crowded, striving for contact, for conflict. It became evident that gathering in our days feels like an act of resistance. Since 2020, public movement had started working with five new participants from different age groups, from the age of 11 to 73. With them, we mapped composition and movements drawing from our past actions and the group arsenal. The meaning of this physical intersection had changed completely when performed by the different bodies. A vigilant, innocent, sturdy body, together with an older, experienced, fragile body. I would like to suggest that it is our civic, if not human, responsibility to navigate with care and consideration the call to obey. I would like to end by returning to my opening argument that being and moving together is a seed for most political actions, that needs exercise and repetition, that public space is where strangers meet and show solidarity. Thus, we can read the act of assembly 
as an essential rehearsal that gives us the tools to act together in an event yet to come. Thank you, Dana. Thank you very much, also Oliver, for your inputs and for your very inspiring thoughts. And well, there's more to talk about than we can possibly handle time-wise. But let's start, since this is the topic of this conversation, with the concept of pre-enactment. Oliver, um, could you maybe give a bit more precise example of what you would consider pre-enactment? In your book, you write about the project by Public Movement, a choreography of street dances. It was circle dances that interrupted the traffic and um, traditional circle dances. And uh, this was picked up later and used by social protest in 2011. Uh, but your definition of pre-enactment is, is very handy and compelling, but actually at the same time not, not so easy to understand because it basically means that we prepare all the time, we try to imagine situations, concepts, or invent situations and concepts, but we can never really know what the future will bring if a political event, as you call it, will occur. So actually, in your definition, we don't know if what we are doing is a successful pre-enactment or even a pre-enactment at all. It only might become one in the future. Yes, exactly. Yeah, of course, you don't you don't know what uh, uh, what the pre-enactment uh, is about. Uh, otherwise, it would not be a pre-enactment. So you can only tell after the fact. I mean, in the case, it feels somewhat strange to discuss this uh, in Dana's presence because, of course, uh, she's in a much better position to describe it. Um, it is a, and maybe you can correct me. It is a, a performative piece where um, Dana and public movement uh, blocked crossroads uh, in Israel with a circle dance, a typical uh, pop, popish, uh, but very famous uh, tune, uh, which does have a particular choreography uh, that goes with it. And uh, many people, if not most people can, can actually dance that uh, circle dance in Israel. So they would block these crossroads. Um, and this was something like a guerrilla performance. Of course, I'm not going into the details of it, uh, mainly because I'm ashamed because Dana is present. So I cannot just you know, uh, give you my own thoughts about, about it. I would rather hear her thoughts about it. But um, what I think is that um, there were many ideas behind that guerrilla performance, but the guerrilla performance was not connected with a concrete struggle, a concrete political conflict. The conflict was certainly latent because the conflict is always latent in Israel, as in every other country, there are latent conflicts. But when these guerrilla performances occurred, there was no manifest conflict uh, with which the protest could link up with. But this manifest protest occurred in 2011, like in many other places in the world. Uh, all the occupations uh, that occurred at that time. And in that moment, it turned out that this circle dance, by which you can block crossroads, could be very useful as a protest format. So participants or members of public movement brought it into the discussion with the other activists on the streets at that time and proposed to, to, you know, to use it as 
a protest format that would come in handy in order to block crossroads, because this is what happens in public protests, in political protests, uh, with bodies, as, as Dana, of course, correctly remarked, with, with collective bodies blocking the usual and common and ordinary streams of circulation. And one, one of these streams of circulation is, of course, traffic. Um, and what do you do when you protest? You protest on the streets in order to block traffic with your bodies. Um, because this is what will disturb the system. And that's the aim of a protest, is to disturb the routines uh, of the status quo, of what happens all the time anyway. And this is what makes an event, something that occurs uh, unexpectedly. And so it turned out that um, these movements, uh, this choreography, but also the format of a circle dance on a crossroad uh, was actually quite successful as a protest format when the protest occurred, finally. So and I, I think you can extrapolate from that. I mean, you, what you need to do is I sort of develop practices, uh, formats, uh, collective practices, of course, formats that could work whenever uh, a political event occurs. And Dana, I mean, this this example, of course, is quite concrete because it was already about blocking the streets. So it's kind of like in a way also easy to take it. Other works also, as when you, you look a little bit at the performances uh, that you showed in the video, are more, let's say, maybe the, the immediate use in a, in a certain social movement or whatever would not be so uh, so obvious. So maybe, but and anyway, you call you call all of your works or most of your works pre-enactment not only the ones that were at the end let's say successful in in uh, changing uh, something in the reality so maybe you could also um, adding to oliver or disagreeing or, or uh, modifying the term to to the way how you would use it yeah well one of the problems of having oliver and me in the same panel is that we usually agree so it's it, it's it's always better to have one more person <laughs> on you know, another speaker to kind of um, spice things up a little bit. Um, but I, I do see some differentiation between our understanding of the pre-enactment also as a kind of proposals for, um, that can be taken by either the state or citizens or a future event or a future civic event and not only uh, formats as tools like the circle dancing how long is now which was um, titled that Oliver gave it um, because we never called it that way but he found it on the web at some point with this title although I've never I've never said those words or asked this question um, these are very concrete activist tools uh, activists that were used in, in in moments in which political um, the, the social atmosphere was was ready was ripe um, but I would say that a lot of our actions are actions that are trying to imagine uh, or imagine a moment in which other ceremonies, other gatherings, other marches, other any kind of staged event that is producing modes of identification or, mo or, or, or how we act together are, are so we imagine them and then we are trying to facilitate or stage those events um, hoping that perhaps it can be reappeared later on 
So I don't only connect it to the to the social political event as the um, let's say the activist or the moment of of, of um, unease, uh, um, but also I would say also trying to to train bodies or to create arenas or to um, also projects that we did together like. Um, assemblies that we designed that could facilitate kind of another another possibility in the future. And um, maybe to talk about, about one, one example, which I uh, briefly mentioned uh, is the make out policy where it was actually an assembly more in a, let's say a parliamentarian form of an assembly. So not only gathering of people, but an assembly. Um, with politicians also, which then we, we also something we can talk about later, the relation to the state and the closeness to the state, which I guess from many uh, activist assemblies would be slightly different. Um, but uh, maybe you can explain a little bit uh, briefly about this project in, in Helsinki, Helsinki and the, the idea behind actually staging, choreographing a real assembly of or parliament of politicians to a degree. Um... Yeah, it was a it was a project. It was a um, first and foremost was a collaboration. So it was really not. Um, I don't see it as, as as only my project. I see public movement entering into a relationship with the um, uh, Baltic Circle Festival, and um, how was it then? The organization that brought the Guggenheim. Um, I. And it come back to me, but um, checkpoint Helsinki. Sorry, checkpoint with Israelis are often forgetting this word. It's like checkpoint. Yeah, it's this thing that we. Um, so um, in in that project, uh, we were um, looking towards the national elections um, that were about to take place in 2014, if I'm not mistaken, um, and we tried to we try to kind of force in the discussion on cultural policies um, into something that would be within the agenda of the different uh, party politics. Um, and we, we, so the idea was not to kind of create mirroring of the, of the national, of the national um, election day or, or the campaign, but try to penetrate the campaign by forcing in an event that would be as official as celebrated, filmed and, and uh, screened uh, national TV, that would force the politicians to discuss um, cultural policies. Um, it was it was um, open uh, in the in the city hall. I can't remember that this, uh, several hundreds of people joined, but it, mainly it was also covered very uh, broadly by the media. Um, and the idea was to create a very uh, stage. Um, carefully orchestrated uh, assembly in which the different politicians would need to present uh, their um, um, agenda for, for how cultural and arts would be if they gain their votes. Um, but in, in, in both of these cases, so either like how do you orchestrate or, or choreograph a discussion or you choreograph bodies in, 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 those, in, in, in those, so if I take Stockholm that I presented in this uh, short um, uh, lecture in both cases there are very what we do is that we create an arena and where other people are somehow performing these tools or are asked to perform sometimes it's politicians sometimes it's the citizens um, 
but I would I would just want to say that I think that in in terms of um, make art policy, I'm not sure that I would define it as a pre-enactment. So I I wouldn't define it as pre-enactment. I just think it's a, it's a it was an assembly that took place. And so I think it would be interesting because. Um, Make art policy took place twice, or there was a sequel yeah. to to the event in Helsinki. And I, for me, I, in comparison, I found it quite interesting to think about the idea of pre-enactment, because I think in Helsinki, whatever we define as a pre-enactment, that it had a politically political impact. As far as I understand from people in Helsinki, it created actually other groups. Uh, it, it in the end was part of stopping Guggenheim building their franchise there, uh, and and so on. So I don't know. Um, uh, so I think it had a potential, at least it was something about imagining a different, also imagining a different way of maybe politicians speak with each other and so on. Um, but uh, the version we did then in the Pulse Festival in, in, uh, in, in Dusseldorf was quite interesting for me as an experience, because uh, the idea, of course, was to create an agonistic situation, conflict also between the, uh, uh, the politicians, and to argue, for example, to say, okay, in case, if I would make my political decision only based on, on the cultural policy of your party, so what can you offer me? And, and we had all this, uh, and, and from what I know from Helsinki, and also uh, from the videos and so on, this worked apparently quite well. I mean, it was also a heated debate there, so that's maybe part of it. In Northern Australia, uh, with the state uh, politicians from there, it was most of our conversations before were saying, oh, please, can you disagree on something? Because they all said, ah, but you know, we cultural politicians, we are against the financial minister, we agree on everything. Even the Green Party said, I am opera, it's okay for me. And the CDU said like, oh, we need experimental theater. And so, so it was basically what we said was basically two things. Um, please try to focus on something where you have a different point of view uh, and not on where you agree. Uh, to, to convince me or us to, to vote for you. And the other was, um, and because uh, there was, it was before the IFD entered the parliament uh, uh, broadly, or not in not as far at least, so but it was clear they would be in. So there was also a member of the IFD and we said like, okay, let's also here deal with it by proposing other, uh, other ideas, not basically only talking about the IFD, but tell us what is instead. And basically one can say in the end it was, like in in, uh, in, uh, in always this situation, maybe, they all said the same in terms of what they want as a cultural policy and wasted most of the time on saying why they disagree with the IFD. So I would say it was in terms of a classical view of theater. It was very representational. It was a perfect representation of a situation <laughs> five years ago, five years ago, mm -hmm. while I would think that the uh, assembly in Helsinki maybe actually had a potential of a, being a pre-enactment or at least being engaged in, in showing maybe a different way of how politics could also, a cultural policy, which was the focus, could also happen. But I think uh, just to, to add one more sentence uh, to it, it is that um, um, there is a moment in which there, there are, there are the, the work of the artist, the labor of the artist is facilitating or producing, imagining, uh, um, uh, orchestrating something, kind of leaving something behind. And then there is the moment in which the artist is also leaving and someone else should take the job. So should take the, 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 um, the tools, uh, uh, the assemblies or the format or, or the choreography and, 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 and take it to another, to, an, to another space of, of um, yeah, usefulness. And I think that this is, this is also like a definition, the division of labor in between the two should leave the yeah. art. Yeah.
and maybe um, to to take it from there. Uh, Oliver, you were, I mean, you both, but then Oliver, you especially were focused very much on the future. So, so uh, it's, uh, it's, it's something that will happen. So basically, we have to do it now, but actually it will do something with the future. So, so the question is maybe also, what does, what does do assemblies do in the present? So, I mean, Judith Butler famously uh, focuses on the, the performative quality of, uh, of the assembly of Occupy and so on and says, already by happening, already by by doing things differently, of living things differently, of trying out different ways of dealing with hierarchies, etc. It's already producing a reality. So it's performative in a Butlerian uh, sense. It produces an own reality in the present. So that's obviously not uh, so much about the future, but it's it's in the very moment. So um, maybe um, you could say something about uh, um, the possible political quality of, of assemblies, not only in, in hoping or fearing the future. Well, maybe I can say just a few words to that link up with uh, what Dana said and what you and the example both of you brought up, because um, I think it very very well illustrates the fact that you cannot create just by your sheer will, you know, in a voluntaristic sense, uh, a conflict to break out. So bringing different parties together in a room does not necessarily mean that there will be a political conflict between them because most of politics is about, it's very consensual and uh, most of politics is about finding consensus, which is not a bad thing in itself, but uh, obviously it will paste over um, the lines of conflicts which are in actual fact present. I think one of the interesting aspects of public movements work is that wherever they go, they are sort of fishing for conflicts, but for the for the latent conflicts, not necessarily for the manifest conflicts. Uh, so, what is uh, uh, the 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 point of trauma, the 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 point of antagonism, how I would call it, in a given society or in a given situation, wherever they come, and then again, as Dana said, leave again, obviously. Um, so uh, that's a very that's a that's an analytical approach first of all because you have to find out you know where these latent lines of conflicts run through a given society, uh, but then comes the performative moment, and then comes the moment where what what to do with it, and certainly to establish um, an experimental setting, or um, you spoke about facilitating. Uh, uh, something that might come out of it, uh, 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 an experimental setting where, uh, again, the elements or moments of the situations are reshuffled, are brought into a different combination, are brought to the fore, then conflicts may become manifest, which used to be latent. At least they, one can start perhaps perceiving them. And this can happen or not. I mean, it can occur or not. Again, because it is something you uh which is in the future you know when you start a given you know work uh, you cannot obviously you cannot foretell and for that reason i think that um i think first of all that's a very important practice which does have a particular connection with politics and political practice not in the trivial sense not in the sense of party politics not even in the sense of activism public movement certainly is not an activist group and political activist group 
uh, is not even an example, I would say, of artivism in, that, in, in, in the strict sense of the term, but it is an analytical approach to politics, which then takes the next step by establishing, establishing an experimental framework within which uh, something can occur. And I think that is, um, that is the moment when obviously um, uh, preformance, as you may call it, uh, comes in, you know, pre-enactment. So, and the other thing I wanted to add is, is the notion of authenticity. Uh, you brought up uh, Florian because in the beginning and also now, because um, to me, uh, it's quite obvious that theater or perform the performance arts or time-based arts are not authentic in the sense in which like a protest uh, in the streets of Damascus at a certain point, you know, going out to protest against the dictator is authentic and immediate. And I, I think that's, that's obvious um, and that there is something else happening there. Uh, and I think it's actually um, a very good thing because I'm also very scared by too much of authenticity. I'm actually scared by the idea of uh, which some people have about public protests, uh, the idea of presentism or the metaphysics of presence. Of course, bodies have to be present at that moment. And in order to become a mob, you have to be there with your body and many people have to be there with their body and this is a moment of presence it's a moment also of authenticity because something can happen to you it's a moment of vulnerability as judith butler would put it which is also and always has been very important as a political symbolic but also real political wager you know it's what we see in russia uh, right now with navalny you know it's a moment it's your own body which is on the stake it's your own vulnerability in order to make an authentic political point, because you take a risk uh, and your body takes a risk. And this makes your political point authentic. Uh, you're, you're prepared to die for it in, at the end of the day. So, and this is what happens anytime people take to the streets in order to protest, because they could die. They put their own body on the line. On the other hand, just to think about politics through the lens of authenticity or through the lens of pure presence is not enough. One has to think about politics also through a lens of presentation, also through a lens of organization, of building what Antonio Gramsci called a collective will, uh, a, an organization, a party, whatever, something which is bigger than you. And then you go through a moment of mediation and then it becomes actually artificial. So this seemingly natural body of the mob is turned into an artificial body. And this is something very similar. This moment of presentation uh, and representation is something very similar to what's going on in the arts, obviously, because art is also about representation. It's not about pure authenticity. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because it allows us to establish precisely what Dana has described as these frameworks of facilitating the frameworks of uh, perhaps uh, experiments with reality, uh, which uh, do have an analytic quality. I mean, I guess that's kind of what I uh, 
meant also with the with the concept of the things are that things are real or authentic in theater and at the same time they are not they are fictitious and that it's not it's neither nor it's not not authentic of course because also they are I mean, and you use the problematic term because they have people are at stake. And that's maybe something, Dana, because you mentioned, of course, the, the role of the bodies in your work, which is very important, and uh, ideas of care, but also of control. So it's also an ambiguous uh, um, relationship. And But there's also a real, uh, I would say, in terms of Oliver talked about the differences from to activism that your work clearly has uh, as an artistic work, but there's a real, also a real risk for the body. You do it in public space. You do it often in situations where people may be not happy, might not be happy about that you're doing it, depending on the work, more or less. So there's a, let's say the the reality of the bodies and and the precarity of the bodies is also very very strong in your work. So so how would you relate between this? With the relationship between a real action in the street and the artistic uh, aesthetic concept on the on the other side, if you would artificially divide them. Yeah, um, it's a it's a good question because um, I would say that in in the successful moments of of the of our performances, or I would say any performance um, or any moment in which you are experiencing art, that you are that it loses the safe surrounding of being an artistic event. So I think there are moments in which the realness, which, I mean, this is why I work with the body, but this happens to me also within, when I see visual art or, or when I see other um, um, moments of cultural gatherings that I forget that it is art or it doesn't matter anymore if it's art or not art, but actually something is happening or it demands for me to do something or to act or to, um, or it um, positions me in, 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 a, in, a, in a situation that I'm not con, you know, confronted, that I'm confronted with things I'm not pleased with, or that I have to act in a way that I'm not sure that morally I should act in that way. So, um, so, so I think that there is uh, these boundaries, these boundaries kind of disappear. Uh, uh, so the realness and the fake, and the fake is real and the fake news. So I don't, I don't think that these separation are very useful for me at the moment for the for discussing this uh, uh, these connections um, and it's the, I mean with Yonastal example I mean they, they, they were illegal in their own country they were present in space you know they were discussing and giving their you know um, agendas and ideologies and sharing ideas and and I don't know uh, complaining together on their you know difficult situation um, so I mean, there is nothing more real than that. And it was completely within the realm of like a theatrical event, which is totally fake. So, so I think that the fakeness of stuff really gives them the realness also, or it, or it has the potential uh, to, to transform into it. Which probably relates a little bit to the question of representation. You were kind of hinting at Oliver also, which can also be seen in the architecture of parliaments, etc., courts and so on, which also have a cost. A certain theatrical set, setting, but maybe to come to because um, it's obvious and it's clear because um, of the kind of talk we're having now that we talked a lot about the form, the psychology, the, um, the structures, the possibilities, and so on of of uh, assemblies. Uh, we didn't talk about causes. I mean, you mentioned uh, causes, Oliver, uh, and and uh, so I say cause and not. Uh, um, uh, reason I learned that <laughs> so but uh, we didn't mention the causes except um, well yeah you did with 
with uh, bread and roses. So, so can we talk about the form of assembly? Is it, is it okay to talk like this about the form and, and uh, all these questions uh, and not uh, separated from the causes? Um, because also we have seen in recent years more, I mean, it always existed, but we have seen in recent years, a lot of, um, let's say, uh, activist strategies, assembling strategies, etc., cetera, um, partly invented or often invented by, by, let's say, leftist groups being taken over by, by uh, rightist groups, by the identitarians, etc. We have seen well, quite a spectacle on the Capitol uh, recently uh, in, in a way we could also think like, okay, this is how the, the alt-right looks and and if you would only see the images, wouldn't you come connect it with something else? So so can we talk about form without talking about the cause or the content of uh, of, uh, of this action? I mean, just a very short answer. Of course, you cannot talk about uh, form without talking about the cause. I think that's my problem with formalism. That would be formalism, right? If if you just look at the forms, but you don't look don't you know, want to know what this is all about. And uh, very much, um, or to put it that way, uh, a lot of art does not necessarily have that cause. I mean, the individual artists have a cause, uh, um, but uh, a political cause is of course not always present. Uh, and uh, it's not necessary. So I'm, I'm not claiming, I'm not making a normative argument that every art has to have a political cause, obviously not. Uh, but those are artists that, you know, claim to be political, uh, oftentimes just pretend to have a cause or have a very banal or trivial cause. And therefore, uh, when it comes to form, I think it shifts. I mean, Chantal Mouffe, I think you invited her uh, as well. I, I mean, she makes this distinction and also Jacques Rancière would make this distinction between like the, the general politicality of art, uh, which is a very banal point that all art is political. And on a very, you know, trivial level, it's true because all art is, is political because everything is political. Um, you know, commercials are political, sports is political in that sense. Why? Because it intervenes in the distribution of the sensible as, as Rancière would put it, or because it is, part of the way the hegemonic consensus in, in society is shaped through symbolic and cultural means, as Chantal Mouffe would put it from a more Gramscian point of view. In that sense, of course, art is always po political. And there you have a lot of forms that are uh, sedimented politics. But this is really trivial in the sense of um, it, it goes for everything. So I don't know why we should why it helps us to understand the political nature of art in a strict sense. And, and then Chantal says there is critical art. Uh, and that would be like political art, but within the institution of the gallery, say, at the walls of, a, you know, of, a, of an exhibition space, that, that it has a political intention, but the, but, but the politics is on the face of it it's merely represented in the sense of even mimetically presented. Uh, it could be very critical, but it will remain, you know, a critical painting. And then there is artistic activism. And this is, takes place in, in the field of the performative, obviously, but it also takes place in the field of politics in the strict sense 
of the term. It is in actual fact political because it is engaged in a conflict, in antagonism. It is part of antagonism and therefore it transforms into politics. It might still be artistic to a certain degree, but it also is political to a certain degree. And when it becomes political, it must by necessity uh, link up with the logics of politics, with, with the laws of politics. So if politics is collective, then political art in that sense must also be collective. Is polit if politics is organized, then political art must also be organized. It cannot be an individual artist doing critical art. That's not that. And here I think, of course, to come back to your, to come back to your question, of course, uh, there are forms of, uh, of the political, but the political itself does not have a form. A cause does not have a form. So to, to, you know, Karl Marx said, you know, I don't want, and Adorno after him, I don't want to give you a clear picture of what a liberated society should look like. It does not have a form. It's a cause, you know, uh, to, to, to liberate society. Uh, and for that reason, it's very hard uh, to talk about the forms of the political. You can only talk about all the forms, that is the aesthetic, regime, uh, the flags and, and costumes of the people who storm the Capitol Hill, uh, which are connected to their political practices, but the political in itself does not have a form. And, and for that reason, forms are contingent. So sometimes, and, 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 and they move, as you, as you said, from left to right. The identitarian movement, for instance, took up many forms developed or formats developed by left-wing protesters. And even in the storming of the Capitol Hill, you could realize you know, um, remnants of leftist uh, revolutionary decorum. So it is in a certain way, um, uh, this movement of forms that is the traveling of forms occurs all the time because forms are contingent there is not a, a, a cause a particular cause is not linked to a particular form the link is contingent so when we are working on forms we are sort of looking for the best forms that would allow us to bring to life a particular cause I, I have a question then. It's, uh, it's okay. um, just to, floor, to Oliver, because if we are discussing assemblies as pre-enactment, uh, um, and, and, and to now I, I, um, I, I agree with you and I, and, and, and I agree with, this, uh, with the rationale, um, and you are really stressing the idea of a cause, but then the cause is coming from the future, but then it's not exactly from the future because it also can be from the past in a way, but we can definitely decide that it is in the present. So it is a cause for the future that might come from the past, but it is now with us. Um, but then if we are thinking about assemblies as pre-enactment, then from what I understand, or if I'm connecting it right, then um, assemblies, 
Uh, so assembly as a training ground is a training ground in which uh, causes are being trained to become a cause or to become common or to become or to or to become more um, emotional driven like uh, forceful it's not necessarily the format of the of the assembly but more the idea that um we need to produce the causes if i don't know it's it, it's just a question or it's um when you think about assemblies as pre-enactment do you think about the causes as pre-enactment do you think about i mean just I don't know. I think the, uh, wait, the cause is that which makes us assemble. So we would not be there. But there are the many. I mean, there are many causes. I mean, there are not many. I mean, we we talk shortly. Um, some of them are non, are completely not political. Some of the, I mean, um, some of them totally. Uh, should I say like? Uh, I, I don't even how how can we ethically uh, judge a cause and then we are still talking about assembly which describes a mode in in which we get together sometimes assembly as a parliament like in the parliament of the assembly or in the theater or the street or and those causes are completely different yeah that's true people are people assemble for different causes individually you know every one of us might have a different cause when you go there so all the people for instance uh uh in a parliament or say on capitol hill at that point uh, the representatives the senators they had different causes why they are there some of them had leftist causes some of them had reactionary causes some of them simply wanted to be become president themselves like ted cruz and others were were, were there simply because they were paid for it so they had reasons and for that reason, I would say that there is, uh, of course, not a single cause that uh, is present in a, in, a, in a formal assembly, uh, but it is present when in an informal assembly when we, when, when we cannot but go to the occupation of Tsukoti Park or whatever, or we go, we, or, or um, but in um, that moment, the assembly is not pre-enactment. And then it's, yeah, yeah. Then it's then it's not a pre. It's not a pre-enactment in the sense that you're waiting for something to happen because it's already happening. Exactly. So assess. Yeah. So, in, so if sorry, I follow I, this and I follow, I'm oh, sorry. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think the the, con the, the continuation of the. Um, concept of the pre-enactment and the pitfalls of it maybe have to wake. I think wait, uh, another issue, of course, also would be um, the question, I mean, since your work leaves many things open, Dana, also the question of the ambiguity of the causes, of the, the, or, or the, or the you know, like what, it would be interesting to also talk about what happens when uh, an artistic work gets a pre-enactment for uh, whatever, uh, um, the taking over of the Nazis or something. So, so how, how this can be guided. But I guess we leave this at the moment for the imagination to, uh, to everybody. And I would just maybe like a last question to you, Dana, before I think we should uh, also come to an end. It already has been a while. Um, so uh, at the moment, so can we think about a pre-enactment or can we think about how to use the time we are in right now uh, with the, in, in possibility of assembling, at least in, in, in bigger groups or in legal ways, also different in each, each part of the world. Can we use this time or where we cannot assemble to 
pre-enact for a future of assemblies uh, in a way. So, so maybe uh, to, to think of, uh, um, I don't know if it makes sense to think of positive things coming out of this, but, but to, to see like, is this distance or this inability at the moment, maybe also a chance for something when you think about assembling in the future? Um, <laughs> I, I, there are some, some things, I don't know, maybe, maybe, my, maybe I'm very trivial in it. Um, I, I believe that, that uh, hopefully we would rethink um, some of the moments that we took for granted until now. So how easy it was for us to just go down and meet someone, how easy it was for us to exchange uh, thoughts with one another. Um, um, how easy it was to present uh, 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 moments of solidarity uh, to each other. I mean, it, it just even it just even small stupid things that happen. You know, like I was sitting in in the center of Tel Aviv two days ago, and um, someone like and she wasn't old; she was like sixty three, and she she stumbled and she fell down, and I came to help her. And people were looking at me in this way of like, how do you dare to even touch her? You know, because like you shouldn't get near that I was it was so obvious for me that like the first thing I would do is come and like to grab her and put her back on her like feet. And um, and I know that many people now kind of imagine that there would be like a kind of science fiction because we feel like we live in a science fiction world that assemble would not happen anymore. So I think there are many things that would be reassessed. And I think definitely what we took for granted until now. Um, but I, I think that in the in the more maybe uh, again corporal, clear, clean need to get together is something that can only happen when we are physically in one space. I think this would not change. And what I imagine can still take place now is little gaps in which we disobey um, what is you know specific guidelines by those who agree to disobey. Thank you, Dana. Instead of opening this Pandora box, uh, we will take this as the final words of our conversation, I guess. Um, that's probably a good sign that there are many things we could continue to talk about and to discuss. So uh, thank you very, very much, Dana and Oliver, for your participation and your insights and for kicking off together this series of The Art of Assembly. After we now talked very much about the concept of assemblies and also very much about the artistic sides of gathering, in the next episodes, we will dive in deeper into question of causes and perhaps reasons, to use the differentiation by Oliver, for assembling. And we will focus on political activist movements. My guest will be Julia Ramirez Blanco, an art theorist uh, from Barcelona, uh, who just finished a book on the M16 movement in Spain which was, of course, in the very beginning of the decade of social movements that I uh, was talking about. And the filmmaker Oliver Ressler, who is, as I would say, one of the main chronologists of social movements since many, many years. So thanks for joining today, and uh, I hope you will back for other episodes. Brut, new art on stage, experimentelle theaterformate, politische performances, spannende Orte all over Vienna. Im Brut-Programm gibt's viel zu entdecken. Alles dazu unter brut-wien.at.